Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zachran, assistant editor of the New Books Network. Today, I'm speaking with Adam Getachew and Jennifer Pitts, both professors of political science at the University of Chicago. Together, they are the editors of W.E.B. Du Bois' International Thought, a collection of essays and speeches. W.E.B. Du Bois is one of the great American political theorists, and this volume showcases his approach to international politics and anti-imperialism from 1900 to 1956. Adam and Jennifer, thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you for having us. Of course. You know, this was a, you know, a great Great, interesting volume. Um, I think there's a lot, a lot here that any uh, professor, any person could really just go and, and pick any any essay and, and learn something something new. Uh, but before jumping into the book, I was wondering if you could both just tell me a little bit about yourself and your backgrounds. So I'm Jennifer Pitts. Uh, I we both teach uh, in the political science department at the University of Chicago. I also have an appointment in the committee on social thought. Um, I'm a political theorist uh, who has had a long standing interest in. Uh, the history of international thought, um, particularly the history of thinking about empire. Um, my work started, my research started in uh, the history of thought about the British and French empires in the 18th and 19th century. Um, and uh, that was what the, the subject of my first book, A Turn to Empire. My second book was uh, a kind of history of the entanglements between European imperial expansion and the history of international law. And it was in the context of writing that book and taking uh, the history of international legal thought kind of up to the the First World War period that I got interested in in Du Bois's thought. And I'm Adam Githacho. I also teach political theory in, um, in at the University of Chicago. And um, I'm also a faculty member in the new Department of Race, Diaspora, and Indigeneity. I would love if the two of you could talk a little bit about, uh, you know, what what the state of Du Bois scholarship has been, and you know, with this volume especially, what you're hoping uh, that readers or other scholars might might start to consider or think about the legacy of Du Bois. Sure, um, I think you know, in the fields of African American studies, African American history, Du Bois is a kind of longstanding touchstone uh, within those fields. Um, He's probably best known uh, for his classic 1903, Souls of Black Folk. And increasingly, uh, there's a lot of great interest also in his 1935 uh, study, um, Black Reconstruction in America. Um, Within the field of political theory, I would say over the last 15 or 20 years, there's been a growing interest in in incorporating Du Bois as a kind of figure that helps us both um, rethink the canon of 
political theory, the history of political thought. Um, and in that regard, also Souls of Black Folk has been the book that's most picked up, that's most incorporated in syllabi and in, you know, um, PhD student uh, exams, exam lists. Um, and, but, you know, as both the field of political theory takes up questions of race and empire, and as there is more intersection between political theory and international relations, there's a growing interest in kind of recuperating and recovering um, schools of international thought that have been marginalized, um, that took really centrally, took up centrally race and empire. And I think the hope with this volume is that this will fill that or will will contribute to that growing interest, both in political theory and in um uh, in in and in international relations, and also help to actually bring those parts, uh, bring those together. I would just add one thing about what what we're trying to do with the book, because Du Bois was such an extraordinarily prolific writer, and because he wrote um, for such a very long time. Uh, you know, even when when the volume starts in 1900, he he's already a mature um, scholar and the author of of you know several books. Um, so so the idea behind this volume, which is part of the Blue Book series, which is, in, you know, intended as a set of, of teaching texts, um, is to give students and instructors um, a volume of his writing that spans the the course of his long um, engagement with questions of the international order, empire, um, and, and the global color line, um, so that because he wrote... Uh, so prolifically about these subjects and because his concerns were, because there were both continuities of concern throughout this long period and also interesting um, evolution of his thought over time, um, the volume is designed to, to, to try to capture that in, in one place. The, the first two essays that are featured in this book were published in 1900. So at this time, at the turn of the century, obviously it's you know high point of, of imperialism, uh, but you know, how was W. E. Boyce, uh, w. E. B. Du Bois first thinking about uh, empire and imperialism at this point of time? Yeah, this is a very crucial moment. And uh, we have two essays from the 1900 period, one called The Present Outlook of the Darker Races of Mankind, which was published as part of it was given as an address and was published uh, as an AM, part of the AME review. And what you see Du Bois doing there is to, kind of developing a method or a, a approach and a writerly approach that he replicates later, which is kind of helping us travel the world with him and touch down at what he takes to be like really focal points for understanding race in a global perspective. So, you know, he shows us what's happening in Japan. He shows us what's happening on the African continent, wh what's happening as as American um American imperial expansion has taken place in the wake of the Spanish-American War, um, and 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 urging his audience, uh, 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 which is part of the Negro Academy, to really think in in a global uh, in a global perspective about the question of race. Um, the second essay is a speech to the nations of the world that was given at the first Pan African Conference. Um, and um, it's, you know, this is the first, this is also a moment in which the language of Pan-Africanism is first born, um, first articulated. There may be kind of precursors, but this is the first time you get something like a Pan-Africanism. And here again, um, you know, he's 
well, him and his collaborators at the conference are kind of projecting a, a vision of the world, right, from their perspective as kind of black men and women who occupy mostly the British Empire and, and the United States. I think also what's interesting about these essays as a beginning point is that like many other figures who are who have a kind of emerging critique of imperialism, it, there isn't quite yet an anti-imperialism to the kind of uh, arguments of these two initial essays. So in the present outlook, he makes the case for African-Americans' position within this new emerging um, American empire that African-Americans might guide and guard, um, you know, the new colonial subjects that the U.S. is going to incorporate. Um, and then in the present outlook essay, there is a similar um, a critique of the British Empire, but really a call for the British Empire to live up to its ideals of abolition and emancipation. Yeah, follow, following up on on that, just drilling down the connection that uh, Du Bois saw between empire and democracy. How how uh, did Du Bois understand that these ostensibly dem democratic states? How how did he see them as justifying empire? Well, he. Uh, there's the argument about how uh, causally the the development of democracy uh, in European metropolitan states and in, in the U.S. is related to empire, um, which I think m might be separate from the question of justification. But he has um, a kind of long historical view about the about the rise of the imperial system and its connection to European democratization. So he says, you know, there have been. Um, progressive movements since the 18th century, call them, they have had different names at different times, but over the course of the 19th century, the incorporation of the European working class um, into the polity as, as you know, understood as moral and increasingly political equals um, has been accompanied by the expansion of European empires and indeed has been enabled by the expansion of European empires that the um, the increasing prohibition on the on the exploitation of the European working classes was made possible both economically and politically by uh, the increasing domination of of um, imperial populations, colonial subjects, um, in the sense both that um, that the 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 proceeds, the you know the economic proceeds of the of, of imperial expansion, um, essentially financed um, the the rising welfare of the of the European working classes that they were made um, kind of co-partners in in economic domination and also that politically um, a, a sort of shared imperial project was a form of of, of political incorporation um, and he says you know the the that the capitalist classes were made to um, accept democratization. On, on the principle that they would be essentially given a free hand at exploitation in the, in the colonial world. This is this paradoxical conjuncture he, he calls democratic despotism. And so he sees democracy, the evolution of democracy over the course of the 19th century in Europe as parasitic upon and really dependent upon uh, imperial exploitation. One of the uh, letters featured in the collection is a letter to Woodrow Wilson. So jumping jumping ahead a little bit to, to um, 1918. Uh, what what was the nature of this letter, and uh, you know, just then also more generally, Du Bois's uh, just role on the global stage, and and you know, 
be interacting with and and speaking with with other other world leaders. The the sort of the main point that Du Bois was trying to get across to people like Woodrow Wilson. Yeah, um, I mean, I think one thing to note about the collection and generally about I think Du Bois's international thought is that there is really a uptick in preoccupation, concern with international themes around World War One. And again, this is a quite common you know, transformation, if you look at other kind of imperial subjects of the period, peers of Du Bois around the world. Um, so what's really interesting about this letter and generally Du Bois's structural and perspectival position is that, you know, he writes as an ostensible citizen of, you know, um, a country that is fast emerging in the 20th century as as the kind of hegemonic power, as the, you know, as the, and this is particularly important in World War I, um, given the ways that Wilson will shape the kind of post-war settlement. Um, uh, but he does so, of course, as a kind of second-class citizen of this, you know, emerging uh, global power. And what he's trying to do in this particular essay is, um, you know, try to articulate the condition of African-Americans not as a national question or as a question of simply of a kind of minoritized population within the United States, but to make the case for why it is that, um, you know, this the kind of American race question ought to be raised to the international level. And he does so through a few strategies, one by, you know, thinking in numerical terms, right, thinking about the ways in which actually the African-American population in the United States is is close to or bigger than countries in in Central and Eastern Europe that you know that are a central preoccupation of the League as as the Austro-Hungarian Empire has fallen. Um, he does so using the new language of uh, minority rights that's central to uh, the post-war settlement. Um, so he's trying to uh, reposition um, the kind of Negro question of the United States as a kind of international question. Um, I think also, you know, this is uh, he's in Versailles. He's in Paris during um, the debates and negotiations around the Treaty of Versailles. He helps to um, organize the first Pan-African Congress uh, um, in this period. So there's also a second strategy we see in this period, which is about creating basically parallel institutions that have this, you know, structure and feel and and kind of status um, of of these other diplomatic sites that would become increasingly important in the in the in the twentieth century. Um, we see this. The, the third, I think, way that Du Bois uh, approaches this is to try to think about, and we see this in the kind of numerical imagination he he draws on in this in this letter, but but we see it in other ways too to try and think about how to interject, you know, in these kind of more, um, you know, the mainstream sites of international deliberation and contestation and how to produce a kind of political subject, international subject that would be capable of having voice in those in those spaces. I would just add, add that he wrote to Wilson twice in the weeks just before Wilson was leaving um, for the um, the Paris conference. The this letter that we include on on uh, African American rights is one, and the other um, is a memorandum about Africa, which is um, and the the question of 
of mandates um, in the League of Nations and the and the the ways in which the colonies of the German Empire and the Ottoman Empire will be supervised by the League of Nations is a major preoccupation for the first um, Pan-African Congress. And so those uh, themes in in uh, the second letter that he writes to Wilson in 1918 get taken up um, very directly in that way. The question of of um, black representation on the League of Mandate, the League of uh, the League's Mandates Commission, um, sort of ties together. Uh, it's a, a, a Pan African project of tying together the fate of African Americans and and Africans uh, more generally, um, the the kind of black diaspora, the political fate of the black diaspora. Yeah, how did Du Bois? primarily approach Pan-Africanism and, you know, especially at this in, in this time period, his sort of approach um, to Africa in general and, you know, places like Liberia and Ethiopia, how he was thinking uh, through different different crises and problems going on at the time. Yeah, it's a big question. Um, you know, this early 20s period, um, after the second Pan-African Congress, he, he makes his first trip to West Africa. Um, it's it's quite an important um, moment for him, um, but you know his interest in Africa, like really precedes this period by at least a decade. Um, so he in 1915 he writes the Negro, a small book that's a kind of his first um, attempt at a kind of history of the race that begins in the African continent, um, and his interest in. Uh, the writing of African history would really persist from that period really up until his death in um, 1963 in Accra, uh, where he was at work on a kind of encyclopedia Africana. Um, but I think in many ways, this early period shows, a, you know, the same kind of um, what we might call a kind of elite driven vision of, of Pan-Africanism in which, you know, um, African-Americans primarily would play a kind of leadership role vis-a-vis the African continent. Um, We see this appear in the kind of context of Liberia, where he hopes that um, Liberia, which, you know, where Firestone Rubble Company is a very important, you know, um, uh, well, exploiter, but also producer of rubber, employer, et cetera, um, and which has a very close relationship to the State Department, that there could be a way in which African-Americans might be incorporated in the kind of governing of Liberia and that this incorporation would have a kind of moderating effect on, on the, um, you know, exploitative dimensions of Firestone's presence in, in Liberia and also kind of produce the forms of civilizational development that Du Bois does endorse. Um, so there's, there's this sense of a kind of, yeah, a, 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 dif- a differentiated vision of of leadership um, in which African Americans play a significant role. So that's one thing I would say about the, at least this version of Pan Africanism of the twenties. Um, I think the other thing that Du Bois is constantly wrestling with is how to actually articulate the kind of connection between African Americans and Africa. Um, so. There is, on the one hand, just a kind of, this will be especially prominent and pronounced in the 30s um, and and 40s, a sense in which what really matters is, you know, the experience of racial domination and that it's that kind of condition, political condition that facilitates and necessitates a link between Africa and African-America. 
but framed in that way, he, as he puts it, like it's not clear that that would be the only connection, right? That's the same for Asia or other parts of the colonized world. Um, so, as simultaneously, there's this interest in the kind of in a in an inheritance, a, a kind of muted but present kind of cultural link, which shows up in in his biography, um, Dusk of Dawn, as as the kind of hearing of his of the songs of his grandmother um when he was a, a baby so there's also a kind of interest in you know a kind of cultural inheritance and i think both of those things ne one never displaces the other for du bois that both are simultaneously at work uh, beginning in his kind of first articulation of what race is in the 1897 conservation of races essay um i think what you see you know as du bois moves into the 30s and 40s is you know, the that structure of, of a vision of kind of political leadership and the necessity of leadership i would say never fully goes away in du bois but you see him thinking about the ways in which um that the kind of that the 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 learning that he envisions african americans providing will will not be a oh, unidirectional one anymore um so the essay black africa tomorrow for instance has this very interesting um, uh, description of how, you know, what you learn, like he, this is him reflecting on what he saw on his trip in Africa. And he says something like, you know, the um, like what what people might call like indolence or laziness is actually a different relationship to labor and, and a, a vision of leisure as a kind of central part of what it means to be human. And so he's interested in in the kind of ways in which different parts of the world have something to contribute to a kind of project of universal humanism. The, the other uh, th thing that's, you know, really interesting throughout the, this collection is, is how, how much Du Bois was thinking about Japan. Um, and, you know, I, I would love to hear a little bit about how uh, Du Bois approached uh, Japan, you know, including it in, in his, his broader vision of like, you know, sort of a multi, multiracial uh, worldview. Um, and then also how he dealt with and approached Japan's imperialism. Well, as as Adon mentioned, as it, as early as the 1900 essay, he's already paying attention to Japan. And as um, Japan, um, you know, the uh, the Russo-Japanese War and Japan's victory, in that he's he's along with many contemporaries very interested in the idea of Japan as a potential um, you know contender among the global powers and in keeping with with his his kind of analytic rubric of the global color line, um, which is quite a bifurcating rhetoric in a way. There's uh, you know the the darker nations of the world versus the the white imperial nations. Um, that rubric leads him in many ways um, for quite some time in his in his um, observation of Japanese politics to downplay the. Um, the dominating facets of of the of the Japanese Empire, um, and to and to place hope in Japan as an agent of liberation um, for the the darker nations, um, and that view persists um, it, well into the the 1930s when he travels. In 1936, he does a um, a, a round the world uh, voyage, taking him through Nazi Germany um, and into the Soviet Union, um, in which he also takes a great interest as a, as a potential 
uh, leader against Western imperialism, um, and then into Japanese-occupied Manchuria and Japan. Um, and he is um, quite uncritical about the... Uh, he, he doesn't really see the racial aspects of, of Japanese imperialism. Um, he sees it as a non-racial form of imperial rule that he thinks may be, you know, potentially emancipatory. Um, and and he uh, essentially defends uh, the Japanese empire um, in the, you know, against the judgment of of other contemporaries like uh, people like Tagore and and Gandhi, who had been very critical since um, the nineteen teens of of, of Japan um, and and J Japan's potential for domination in Asia. Um, and it's it's only in the late thirties, I think, that he reevaluates Japan um, and Japanese imperialism and starts to think about it more as a form of um, capitalist domination rather than a kind of, um, you know, source of, of potential um, pressure against the global color line. Um, so Japan is one of the cases where um, we've thought that the, the global color line rubric blinded him in certain ways to forms of, of domination and exploitation that he, that um, Liberia is another case where the the relationship between the the Americo Liberian settler population and the indigenous population is is um, one that he did he didn't really perceive the the lines of domination there um, again because it didn't fit with the the global color line rubric that he was working with um, but he does eventually come to see Japanese imperialism as of a piece with capitalist imperialism writ large. Yeah, du Bois's approach is such a, a macro. Uh, historical approach. Uh, he, he's 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 really one to constant to look at many different cases. Um, you know, do you, just you know, as far as each of your individual opinions are are concerned, like how you see the uniqueness of Du Bois's approach and thought. Um, like, what was this typical for for people to be this interested in you know spanning the the globe and uh, trying to to draw you know draw connections, doing this kind of comparative. Uh, sociology or comparative history was this, or was this something that Du Bois was really just kind of figuring out on his own? Yeah, I mean, I think from my perspective, you know, I would say um, I think Du Bois's internationalism is of a piece uh, with a kind of wider African American interest and preoccupation with the world, and I think really this form of you know internationalism or trying to situate. Um, African-American politics within a global space is is a kind of reoccurring theme within the tradition of African-American political thought. I do think, I mean, Du Bois is a singular person in the sense that, you know, one, he lived for quite a long time. He was incredibly prolific. And it, it does seem just from, you know, I mean, the books he wrote, the number of essays he wrote, you know, he he had this incredible capacity to, like, have his, you know, have a sense of like a really broad world. He was, you know, just reading quite widely. Um, and this seems very, um, yeah, singular in that regard. It's hard to, it's hard for me to think about a kind of person I would think is like comparable or equivalent in that, in that sense. Um, and I think there is something, uh, you're right. There's something like panoramic, especially about some of the essays. Like we talked a little bit about the present outlook essay, the worlds of color essays, another one where he's just kind of 
roaming the earth and giving you a sense of, you know, different, like what's going on in French Africa and what's going, how are the British doing in empire, et cetera. So there's, that's like one style he has. And then the other, I think that's also quite, um, maybe not unique, but I think he does it in a very distinctive way is an attempt to think about like the domestic and international together or to, and democratic despotism is, is that one version of that the attempt to internationalize African-American politics, another version of that. So he's constantly interested in um, in um, not only transcending the boundaries of the nation, but demonstrating the ways in which the domestic, what we take to be the domestic, is actually configured by and related to the international. The only thing I would add is that in addition to that panoramic view, he he wrote in a very granular way, too. I mean, the Worlds of Color essay that, that Adon mentioned convey some of that the fact that he traveled you know he he wrote um based on his travels based on the the 1923-24 trip that Ada mentioned his first visit to Africa this 1936 uh round the world trip um he was both taking a panoramic view of the globe but also drawing on his own very granular observations of of politics and society in the many places he went and as editor of the crisis for many many years he uh, was, you know, well connected with sources of information from all over the world. He had people sending him documents from the League of Nations uh, about Liberia. He, he, so he was, um, he was, you know, extraordinarily well read and also just had great sources of, of information on the basis of which he compiled his argument. How did uh, Du Bois's thought shift as we move from an age populated mostly by empires to a world made up of still some, you know, empires, uh, but maybe maybe as uh, in in name uh, as you know go- going under the uh, the name of a nation state? So you know, how did how did he think about this transition to a world of, of nation states? I think one important thing to say about that is how prescient he was about the ways in which imperial domination would persist into a world of nation states. So he took a very strong interest in the um, the independent black states of the early 20th century, so Haiti, Liberia, and Ethiopia in particular. And he anticipated what would come to be called neocolonialism, the ways in which formal political rule was not necessary for imperial exploitation. So he was, um, you know, he closely tracked the U.S. occupation of, of Haiti. And then, um, as Adam was describing, the role of Firestone as uh, you know, a corporation that was deeply tied into the U.S. State Department and the ways in which those two powers, the State Department and the private corporation, collaborated to control land and labor in Liberia, the ways in which, um, you know, foreign investment, lending, control of transportation networks, control of markets could effectively um, dominate a, a people just as much as as formal rule and in part that's what he's doing in worlds of color is is thinking about he's, he says there are many ways to skin a cat um there you know imperialism is is a protean phenomenon and um accomplishes its ends through many different mechanisms not all of which require formal rule so so in that sense i think he was less hopeful than some were perhaps about um the thought that that uh, formal decolonization would transform Things. And and again, he anticipated the arguments of people like Kwame Nkrumah in um, in his account of neocolonialism um, by a number of decades. You know, my, my last question about Du Bois is just 
thinking about why, or just asking the question, why his thought still resonates today. Uh, and, you know, if there's anything in particular, some of his ideas um, that either of you think have particular salience. I mean, one I would just say, I think, is this what I mentioned earlier around the thinking, you know, at the intersections of or beyond the boundaries between the domestic and the international. And it seems um, especially important in a context, you know, of rising nationalism um, and this kind of, especially in the United States, it seems both a kind of desire to be kind of withdrawn and also to project leadership, to think about, um, yeah, what it would mean um, to think much more critically about the the ways in which the domestic and the international are entangled and interrelated and shape one another. Um, I think that's one, you know, I think the second, you know, as people who are citizens or residents of the United States, like what it means, I think he gives us this very powerful vision of what it means to be a kind of critic of empire from within the empire, from the metropolitan perspective. So what what is that kind of metropolitan anti-imperialism, what might it entail? Um, how might it try to produce forms of critique and accountability and constraint from within uh, as much and in collection in solidarity and collaboration with those who are the you know subjects of, of um, empire abroad. But, but I think that's a quite a very interesting position. And you know, I think I think also that produces in Du Bois, a really interesting set of rhetorical strategies and 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 orientations. I mean, uh, again, I and which I think is quite important. So sometimes he will, you know, espouse the ideals of the United States, right, as a way of kind of making space for his own kind of critical perspective. And I think, you know, in any given case, of course, you'll have to decide what are the best strategies for your own time. But something about the reading these essays also shows us like different positions, perspectives, and strategies from which one can articulate a kind of anti-imperial position. Um, and then I think maybe more kind of normatively, you know, um, it, Du Bois is just a, a deeply, deeply committed to the project of democracy. You can see it in these essays uh, that we've collected, but of course also throughout his um uh, b books on the United States and beyond, and um, what it might mean to kind of demo do you know, as he puts it to like make democracy encircle the earth is um, a very yeah I think it's a very uh, powerful way of thinking about like how we might think about democracy as the only really antidote to imperialism even if democracy has been historically entangled with imperialism. It's hard to add anything to that. I would just uh, to add to the to the first theme that Anna mentioned of of tr kind of forces that transcends the domestic and the international. I think, you know, Du Bois's attention to the ways in which racial domination and capitalism, um, to the fact that those forces are among the most you know powerful forces in global politics, um, and the ways that they transcend the uh, the boundaries of states. Um, are insights that in some ways the field of international relations is only very slowly catching up to, to Du Bois in, in considering. Yeah. So lastly, you know, like Du Bois, you two are, are both scholars working on your own work. So, you know, I would love if, uh, if, if you two could both share a little bit about the stuff that you're working on uh, now beyond this project uh, and other things that you're thinking about, maybe upcoming book projects or essays uh, or the like. 
Yeah, I'm writing a book now um, on uh, Garveyism and the movement, mass movement um, named after and founded by Marcus Garvey, um, this kind of uh, a foe of Du Bois uh, during the 1920s period. But, you know, I continue to be very interested in um, kind of, uh, I guess, the scalar imagination of Black political thought and practice, and in particular, very interested through this project to think about what um, what it meant to tr- produce a kind of transnational mass movement in, in this period and how how the b- movement became the site for incubating ideas about self-determination, self-empowerment, etc. Um, I'm for the moment going back to, to the 18th century, uh, which is where my work started and thinking um, both about about the kind of cosmopolitan imagination in the 18th century and the the ways in which um, 18th century thinkers understood cosmopolitan possibility as um, somehow bound up with the fact of European empire and and worries about it, its being tainted by empire and and um, kind of visions of of cosmopolitan possibility that might transcend its uh, you know imperial conditions um, and. And also, I've um, been interested in uh, 18th century anti-slavery argument. Well, Adam and Jennifer, thank you so much for being guests in the New Books Network. It was great to speak with you both about W.E.B. Du Bois' international thought. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.